Welcome to this edition of Community Matters Podcast, where we discuss issues important to managing, managing and governing condos, cooperatives, and homeowner associations. My name is Tony Campisi, Executive Director of Community Associations Institutes, Pennsylvania and Delaware Valley Chapter. The topic for this episode is how a community association can effectively manage lakes and ponds without the use of chemicals. My guest today is John Phelps, an environmental scientist with Solitude Lake Management. John has over a decade of experience in water and land management throughout the Delaware, Pennsylvania, and the rest of the Mid-Atlantic. John has worked on major land development projects, conducted threatened and endangered species surveys, and played an integral role in efforts to reduce nutrient loading and sustainably manage harmful algal blooms in community lakes and ponds. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining us today to talk about this important topic. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's uh, start with an obvious question. Why should a community association want to eliminate the use of chemicals in the management of their lake, pond, or stormwater basin? Yeah, it's a great question. Although completely eliminating the use of herbicides and algicides in their lakes is a difficult task, it is something that you want to try to achieve. Um, I'd say using less and less herbicides to achieve good results is uh, an excellent strategy. And we can discuss multiple non-herbicide tools to manage bodies of water. You know, a brief uh, look into them would be things like proper aeration, nutrient management, using beneficial plants to use up unwanted nutrients. Things like those tools can be substituted for herbicides and algicides. So once a community decides to reduce reliance on herbicides and algicides in its lakes and, and ponds, what are their options? You've mentioned a couple of them already. Yeah. Well, Water monitoring would be an excellent first step. Understanding the chemistry and the biology of a body of water will be helpful in selecting non-herbicide options. Good aeration, increasing dissolved oxygen is going to go a long way. Working with an expert to accurately size an aeration system for a volume of water is going to be beneficial. Help turn over water systems and uh, promote good growth good aerobic enzymes. Um, Working with beneficial plants. There are many native indigenous plant species that we work with that are using up the nutrients in these basins. And of course, proactive management as opposed to reactive management is gonna be uh, very recommended. So in in talking about herbicides and algicides, you're talking about the use of them in the actual water. Uh, Does the use of of chemicals in lawn treatments and gardens, does, is that also part of the problem? Yeah, it very much is. Um, as herbicides or some cases fertilizers are used in terrestrial areas surrounding water bodies, stormwater basins, lakes and reservoirs, they can eventually make their way down, uh, draining down into these water bodies and affecting the water body. With fertilizer, it increases phosphorus and nitrogen that getting can get into a pond and can accelerate pond growth. And of course herbicides, you know, if used improperly could migrate down to a water body and have an adverse effect on the uh, flora and fauna that live around the pond. Um, that's why we promote beneficial plants and working with good plants that want to live around basins, uh, ponds and lakes. They can create a buffer uh, 
uh, between the terrestrial area and the water body. And in many cases, they can take up a lot of unwanted herbicides or fertilizers before reaching the water body. Sometimes communities will experience bad odors around a stormwater pond. Uh, can you tell us what typically could be causing this and how it might be prevented? Sure. Uh, organic material breaks down and in these basins, stormwater ponds or lakes or reservoirs, the decomposition of that organic material, uh, that process can it can smell. You can get that sulfur smell. It's, a lot of people complain about it. Uh, another great benefit of aeration is accelerating that decomposition and can reduce that smell. And physical removal of some of that organic material can go a long way to reducing the smell that we're describing. Things like hydro raking would be a great way to physically remove the decomposing detritus in a lake or reservoir. I want to ask you about uh, fish kills. What causes a fish kill and what are some things that a community can do to stop that from happening? We see a lot of fish kills naturally uh, this time of year. Uh, all lakes uh, and ponds are different dynamic systems, but depending on depth, you generally see a water turnover in the spring where uh, water from the bottom actually shifts, comes up to the surface. And uh, what that does is very low dissolved oxygen from the bottom of the lake is then shifted to the top and essentially the fish that inhabit the top layer of the lake are, are choked out because there's low dissolved oxygen. So that's a natural way that we'll see fish kills this time of year. Uh, also, especially now with all the heavy rain we're experiencing, rain has very little or no dissolved oxygen in it. So you can imagine a huge rainstorm, a lot of water coming into these basins without dissolved oxygen reduces the DO, again, choking out fish. There are other natural ways that fish will die. Um, they are subject to disease, just like any other species out there. Uh, to promote or to avoid fish kills, aeration. Aeration, subsurface aeration is going to be your biggest bang for your buck for minimizing the risk to uh, fish or having experiencing a fish kill. I talked about water monitoring. You know, understanding the biology and the chemistry of the pond is going to be very important. Is there enough dissolved oxygen for the fish to survive? And the water monitoring can give you that information. So John, we're recording this podcast in, in early June, summer's right around the corner. Mosquitoes are a huge problem in many communities, especially around their lakes and ponds. What are some sustainable ways to reduce the impact of mosquitoes? So large lakes and reservoirs, anything over an acre, <clears throat> excuse me, especially if you have air, good aeration, they're typically not going to be the mosquito breeding habitats, especially for vector species and nuisance species. But there are areas in large lakes and reservoirs and stormwater basins where there's smaller, shallower water, and that can be ideal habitat for mosquitoes to breed. Um, there are a lot of biological control methods out there. There are specific minnows that can be introduced to certain habitat that will eat, thrive off eating the mosquito larvae, reducing the population that way. I talked about aeration. It's another great benefit. Um, by creating some ripple effect from the aeration, it doesn't make it a very conducive habitat for mosquitoes to lay their eggs and go through their um, pupil stage, larval and pupil stage.
and then eliminating any other standing water, you know, that is close to a, a basin, you know, the rock areas where water comes in, you know, eliminating standing water is going to be you know, your best way to reduce mosquitoes. We've all heard about uh, toxic algal blooms, uh, whether they're in the news or in our own community. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who aren't quite sure what that is and how to identify it. So can you talk a little bit about why we should be worried about uh, an algal bloom occurring in a community's water bodies? Yeah, it's a very, it's an excellent topic and everyone should be aware of what blue-green algae is, the threat that certain blue-green algaes have on public health. There are specific algae bloom strands or species out there that have a toxicity to them. Um, and when algae counts of these particular blue-green algaes become very high, if you're exposed to those algaes, you can be at risk for public health or your health can be at risk. Um, things like ALS and um, intestinal illnesses and ear infections and urinary tract infections are very realistic illnesses that you can get from exposure to blue-green algae. Cyanobacteria is a classic blue-green algae that if levels become too high, uh, you, there needs to be some type of management done um, to reduce risk, whether that be um, reactive uh, algae treatments to reduce algae counts or uh, quarantining quarantine an area so that people are not exposed to them. Um, proactive management is going to be your best way to minimize the risk. Don't let the algae get to be that bad. Blue-green algae is natural. It's out there. Um, but it is something that can be managed and can be and you can minimize your exposure to it. Is exposure to humans, uh, to the blue-green algae, is it uh, only if they come into contact with it in the water, or can it become airborne? It, are pets also a concern? Should, should people keep their pets away from this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Everything you just said is correct. Um, so if certain algae, blue-green algae, become so high, their counts are so high, they can become airborne, or yes, and there is a... a potential for to breathe it in and have respiratory problems. An example I have is at a park pond in Pennsylvania where we were doing some monitoring, some proactive, it was a new client, and we did some water sampling and the blue-green algae levels were off the chart. We had to quarantine the park and do an extensive um, algae treatment. It took about two weeks to clear it up. Uh, but leading up to that, I sat on an, an environmental advisory council for this township, and the, we were getting calls. Um, their dog, people's dogs were getting sick. Um, they couldn't make the connection. Why were they, these dogs getting sick? But it was because they were coming, going into this pond before we had identified this problem. Um, so it is, uh, it is a risk for dogs, pets, humans. You don't have to just go down and touch it. Um, getting close enough, if levels are high enough, could put you at risk. And is it always on the surface, like you'll see blue-green algae, or can it be just below the surface and you not know it's there if you don't see it? Uh, typically, <clears throat> you will see it. Uh, blue-green algae, it's, 
it's a little easier to identify some of the more common strands because of its name, blue-green. It generally will make the water kind of a bright green color. Um, and that's a pretty good indicator that, uh, you know, you have blue-green algae if you're, you, can, you can identify it. So the blue-green algae is different than the filamentous algae, where the filamentous algae is a non-toxic, very common, it's very stringy, you know, it floats up and creates these ugly mats on your pond. Blue-green algae is a single-celled algae, and it can be distributed throughout the water column. And when levels become too very high, they can kind of make their way to the surface and, and, and create more of a surface scum, but it really discolors the entire water body, that blue-green, that bright green color. Okay, uh, and I'm, I've seen them, so now I understand what you're talking about now mm -hmm. that you <clears throat> Excuse me, now that you explained it. That sometimes we'll see a pond that's filling in with sediment, and increasingly the pond experiences flooding during rainstorms more than it used to. What's going on in that situation? Sure. In nature, there's a natural process called eutrophication, and it's the natural progression of lakes, ponds, filling up with sediment that's making its way downstream into a lake or reservoir or pond. Uh, also, you have the accumulation of leaf debris. You have the accumulation of, you know, animal, uh, animal droppings. You know, just it's the accumulation of organic material over time. So in nature, it's called eutrophication. And you know, if you look at a, a natural pond, and over the course of ten thousand years, you know, it can fill up and create become like a wetland. That's how it creates in, in nature. How it happens. Uh, with, and man, with, what man has done is created um, stormwater basins to manage a lot of their storm events. And what they've done is created these stormwater ponds that are intended to collect sediment um, as a way to reduce sediment getting out to the waters of the U.S. In both cases, they, whether it be man-made or natural, the process of these basins filling up with sediment does reduce the carrying capacity. And as you reduce the carrying capacity, the water doesn't have anywhere else to go. And that's where you are open to potentially flooding. Um, so, you know, monitoring your sediment accumulation in either a natural pond or a stormwater basin is gonna be very beneficial. It's going to uh, allow you to plan when potentially a dredging or a hydro raking type of activity may be necessary. Uh, to reduce sediment loads in a basin or a pond uh, can also be very helpful to budget a project like that. Hey, how much sediment do we have to take out of this, you know, this pond, um, and you know, what's that going to cost? Well, I'm glad you <clears throat> mentioned the, the, the budgeting for it. As you know, dredging is extremely expensive, and most community associations are on tight budgets. So, can this be prevented from happening? Um, and what can be done to restore the pond's original volume? Is dredging the only option? Well, dredging is not the only option. I would say proactive integrated pond management is going to be your biggest bang for your buck for understanding when a dredge project or, or sediment reduction project may be necessary. Proactive management is going to prolong the need for that. There are many strategies and tools that we use uh, to, to accelerate the decomposition of uh, organic material as it collects in ponds and in stormwater basins. I talked about aeration. I can't talk about it enough. 
a good combination of a good aeration system matched with good biological products can reduce organic material over time, accelerate that, uh, and, and, and extend the need to actually potentially dredge or, or, or somehow remove that material. In stormwater basins, dredging or physical removal of sediment through a hydro-raking type of, of activity is going to be necessary, most likely at some point, but through proactive management, you can really understand when that's gonna be necessary, how to budget for it, and really try to prolong it as long as possible. Right. One of the other nuisances uh, or problems for community associations is geese. Um, geese hanging around community lakes and ponds. Are there natural ways to deter geese from swimming uh, and nesting around the water? Beneficial indigenous plants. Creating a healthy vegetated buffer surrounding the perimeter of a natural pond or a stormwater basin is going to go a long way to deter geese from roosting in your pond or stormwater facility. By creating a five foot, 10 foot if you can, barrier between the water's edge and upland, it's gonna create this habitat that geese don't wanna pass through to get down to your pond. They don't know what's in there. You know, there could be something that wants to eat it. So they try to, they generally stay away from those ponds. And when done correctly using beneficial plants, you can not only deter geese from roosting in your pond, but you can beautify it, create some color. I use a lot of um, perennial flowers in our, most of our pond uh, buffer designs. And I can't talk enough about good buffers around the basin. I think they make them look good. They deter geese. They can uh, minimize your risk of erosion along your banks, and they can um, take up a lot of unwanted nutrients before getting down into the water body. Um, we've covered a lot of ground here, John, um, a lot of specific issues, but um, let's say there's a community association that's got a community pond that is constantly has something wrong with it, any number of the, 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 the problems we just discussed. What type of long-term solution can you suggest that would make that problem go away or, or be managed? So we talked about water testing. Regular water quality testing is going to go a long way to prevent, or what it's going to do is reveal the trends and be able to more accurately predict problems over, the over time. And by taking that information and plugging into an annual maintenance program, you can get ahead of the growing curve. You can understand what's going on in your pond. And you know whether it be a natural pond or a stormwater basin, they're going to need ongoing maintenance. But with good proactive annual maintenance, using some of the tools that we've discussed today, you can get these ponds, natural ponds, <laughs> or stormwater ponds to start having some ecological balance. And that's really what you want to achieve. Um, it's hard in, in modern society, especially where we live on, here on the East Coast. You know, we have so much impervious surface. Um, you know, ponds are filling up with sediment. We have invasive species to deal with. You know, ponds, natural or stormwater, are always going to need a little help from their stewards or professionals. Um, but that proactive management can go a long way to uh, under, understanding any problems and correcting them 
I was at a community uh, yesterday in Bucks County, um, and they had a beautiful clubhouse, pool, uh, bocce courts, tennis courts, a lot of outdoor recreational facilities. And literally right next to the complex was a stormwater management pond. Wasn't particularly attractive, but it, it was shaded from the recreational area by trees. Um, this happens a lot in communities. You've, you've driven through them, you've been to lots of communities, you see this. How can a community make lakes, and, and more importantly, I think more specifically, their stormwater basins more of a centerpiece for the residents and their families? Everybody loves to see water, but they want it to be clear and clean and sparkling with a fountain. Um, so what, some, some ideas there? Proactive management. We talked about aeration, you know, getting the water moving, creating something aesthetically pleasing either through a floating fountain that's throwing water up in the air that can be very uh, aesthetically pleasing um, I talked about the plants you know when done correctly you know the plants can work to achieve your results they, they are taking up the these nutrients that have collected in these ponds and as they're taking them up to grow they're cleaning the water as well and another benefit of these plants are they have beautiful flowers. Um, the, you know, you're creating some natural habitat there. You're bringing in by creating these buffers that we talked about. You're going to bring in the, the butterflies, the monarchs, the, the 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 birds that want to beneficial birds. You know, that are not only look nice but are also eating insects and such. Um, I've talked about water quality and water monitoring. I can't talk enough about it. If you understand you have too much phosphorus in a pond, which is creating algae blooms, potentially the blue-green algae, there are non-herbicide options out there to reduce, uh, it's called nutrient remediation. Um, you know, that can go a long way to cleaning up the water and making it a cleaner uh, water body, something more aesthetically pleasing and, and more of an asset for a community or a, uh, you know, a, a residential or commercial property. Those are some great ideas, John. I think this was a really great conversation. Uh, a lot of good information here that our, our listeners, our members can take back to their community. So thank you for taking the time today to share this information with us about sustainable strategies to care for lakes and ponds in our community associations. Those of you who may want more information on this topic can visit Solitude Lake Management online at www.solitudelakemanagement.com. For more resources uh, on other topics regarding the management or governance of your condominium, cooperative, or homeowners association, please contact CAI or visit our website at www.cai-pa-delval.com dot org. Thanks for listening.